the, the first sermon I ever preached was as a youth pastor in Lafayette, Indiana. I was uh, 24, maybe 25 at the time, and working at a church of oh, 250, 300 on, on a good Sunday. Uh, just a senior pastor and myself. He was a mentor for me. He actually did our wedding over 33 years ago. Great guy. Uh, and uh, he usually did all the preaching. I did the worship and worked with the youth and all that. Uh, but one Sunday, he, I guess he thought I'd been there long. He said, I'm going to give you a shot. This would be good for you. This will stretch you. I want you to preach the Sunday after Easter. So he gave him the passage. It was Luke chapter 24, the passage where you know, Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus. Uh, and uh, there's a couple disciples walking with him. They don't recognize him at first. And I won't go into all the details, but I preached that text. But that's all I remember about it. I don't remember anything else about that sermon. And I'm guessing, guessing nobody else does either. You know, so uh, uh, and, and I'll just be honest, as a pastor, we know that most of the sermons that we preach aren't going to be remembered in specific detail uh, years down the road, much less even a, a few days or weeks or months after. There are a few, of course. Um, there's a few that stick out for me over the years where I was in a past in a, in a service and and it was just the right word at the right time. The Holy Spirit used it to really impact me. And there's things that I can just really clearly remember about that message. Um, or maybe you've had the experience you've been in a, maybe a passion conference or a, or some sort of gathering or or maybe back in the day, uh, Billy Graham crusade or whatever. And and you remember specific things about that that message. It just struck you. The Holy Spirit brought it together at the right, right time. But most sermons, most sermons, I mean, Rick and I, we'd agree, right? Most sermons, people aren't going to remember, you know, uh, really well uh, years down the road, uh, which is okay with me. It doesn't bother me because it's clear from the New Testament that preaching and teaching from God's word, guided by the Holy Spirit, it's, it's essential uh, for uh, any believer to grow into spiritual health. And so even though maybe you don't remember many sermons specifically, that's okay, um, a regular diet of God's word in spoken form is essential for anybody who wants to follow Jesus. It's like uh, to be healthy physically, um, you, you have to eat regularly and you have to eat what's good for you. Uh, you, you don't remember the specific meal menus from the thousands of meals you've had. Maybe a few stick out to you, but most of the time you, you couldn't tell me what you had for breakfast three weeks ago. Uh, unless you eat oatmeal every day like I do. So maybe that would be different. But, but just because you don't remember the specific menus doesn't mean you should just stop eating them because you need them to stay healthy and functional. The same is true spiritually for us. And it was the same back in the early days of the church. And, and all but a few of the sermons that were preached in the early church are lost to history. They're not remembered anymore. But there are a few that we have in the scripture. And this morning we're going to be looking at one of those sermons that is recorded in Acts chapter 2. It's beginning at verse 14. So I'm going to encourage you to turn uh, in your Bibles or on your phone app, or you can just follow along on the screens behind. And we're going to be working our way through this, this, this sermon today. And it follows up what came before. We started our sermon series in Acts last week, and we looked at the first part of chapter 2 and also chapter 1. And we saw that the, the early church on Pentecost was, was birthed. The Holy Spirit fell upon the believers, and we asked the question, what explains the growth and explosion of the church from this small group of, of, of believers into this worldwide phenomenon that's changed billions of lives since and impacted culture and history? And the answer was, is the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's what birthed the church. That's what, what explains 
how this grew into this worldwide phenomenon where lives are transformed and culture is changed. And today we're asking the same question because there's another element that was present in the birth of the early church here in Acts, the early part of Acts, that, that working in conjunction with the Holy Spirit was the key, the stimulus that, that, that grew the church and exploded the church and transformed lives. So take a look at this first sermon. Uh, it was preached uh, uh, on, the, the, on the day that the church was born, on the day of Pentecost, and it's a doozy. And it was a sermon that 3,000 people, I guarantee you, never ever forgot what was said that day. So the Peter is the preacher, and he begins by tying his sermon to current events. Events, you know, we, we try to do that. That's helpful, you know, to help people. Here's the relevancy. Uh, this is what this is how it speaks to what's going on in my world and my life. And what has just happened here? Fifty days or so ago, Jesus was crucified and then rose from the dead. And so the people who are gathered together, these Jewish people from all over the region, they, they come they come to Jerusalem for this festival. They would have heard about this. Uh, some of them would have still been talking about it, and they sure would have had an opinion on whether or not Jesus actually rose from the dead. And, and so Peter n- knows this, and he gets to that quickly. But first, in his introduction, he explains what has just happened in the first part of Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit, as we've said, fell upon 120 or so believers. They're gathered together in this house. And it comes down and, like it says, like a powerful wind and, and there's sound and noise and, and they begin to be filled with the Holy Spirit and begin to talk in all these different languages, which is an odd thing because they only speak one language. And so they begin to talk in all these different languages and all these Jewish uh, people from around the region who are there for this big festival, it draws a crowd because they begin to hear these, these disciples who speak one language, begin to talk in different languages. And they can understand what they're saying. It draws a a crowd, it it causes a scene. And there's two responses. One response is they're stunned. Like, how can this be? They're talking to to me in my language, uh, and I understand they're talking about God and the wonders of God. And others, their response is, well, they're just drunk. They're skeptical. This is just nonsense. And so Peter seizes this opportunity he stands up and begins to preach. Verse 14. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour my spirit on all people, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, and your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. And even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. And I'll show them wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below and blood and fire and billows of smoke. And the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, that's quite the introduction. He says, you want to know what this all means? Let me tell you, he quotes Joel chapter 2. He makes a direct connection. He speaks with authority and confidence. This is what this means. This is what's happening. And then he hammers home his key point, the thing he wants them to remember above all else. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's a lot of debate in our world about spiritual stuff, about how to get to heaven, how you can be saved. Some people think that there is no heaven. There's nothing after we die. 
Some think if you try hard enough or good enough that you've got a shot maybe of getting in. Some think we really can't know one way or the other what's the best approach, so why even try? And some think that it's maybe this religion or, or that religion or this philosophy. Peter's very clear. He says, all who call on Jesus' name will be saved. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to worry. You don't have to guess. Jesus is the way, the life, the truth. Peter's very clear, as is Jesus himself. You know, this good thing is God doesn't drop us into the world and leave us to our own devices, struggling to figure out why we're here and what's the purpose and, and how, if there is a God, how do we get to know him and how can we get to heaven? I mean, there are things we don't know, can't understand, won't know, but God is clear about the way of salvation. It's not like, say, you wanted to go to Alaska. You've never been there. You don't know anybody who's ever been there. Nobody who's ever been there, if it exists, has come back to tell you about it. People talk about all different kinds of ways and roads to get there. Which one is the right one? It's not like that. God tells us clearly what is the right road, what is the right path. A certain one, and Peter does too. And he doesn't just tell them, he shows them how, and he shows them, he shows them why. Verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. So he's appealing to their experiences and their their knowledge, 50 days after Jesus' death and resurrection, a lot of them would have seen Jesus, maybe seen one of his miracles, and they would have for sure heard about them. And he goes on, This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to a cross. So he connects what's happened to God's sovereignty and wisdom. In other words, he's saying Jesus was not a victim. He wasn't caught up in circumstances by the crowd. God had a plan. God had a purpose. God was in control. God knew this was going to happen. And so Jesus, as God's son, knowingly and willingly went to the cross and gave his life. It wasn't a surprise. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't, well, I'm going to make the best of this situation. God orchestrated this. This was his plan. And then Peter declares to the crowd, and you, with the help of wicked men, Put him to death. Wow, that's didn't pull any punches. Why does he say this? Well, many in the crowd would have been around for the Passover festival. They would have seen Jesus and cheered for him as he came in. Some of them would have been there when uh, when when Pilate asked the crowd who who should release Barabbas, this career criminal, or Jesus. And many of them would have shouted along with the crowd. Give us Barabbas, effectively sending Jesus to die on the cross. And then in another sense, Jesus had to die to pay for the sins of all people, not just the wicked people, but all people. So in a sense, don't we all bear some responsibility? So Peter, he creates a little tension here. He says to the crowd, you know about Jesus, well, you're responsible for his death. But then Peter begins to turn towards the good news. Verse 24. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, <laughs> because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So he, he now 
speaks to a need that we all have. What is that need? What has always defeated human beings? Death. We figured out ways to prolong life or to enhance life, to save lives for a time, but we've never figured out a way to avoid death. It gets us all in the end. But Peter says Jesus defeated death. God raised him. It was impossible for death to defeat him. And again, Peter doesn't just make this statement. He then, he then backs it up by referencing some Old Testament prophecies. One in particular from Psalm 16, where, we, where David said this in verse 25. David, he's quoting David here. I saw the Lord always before me, because he's at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. So he's looking forward to his own resurrection in the next life, but then he's, he's looking forward, he's prophesying about Jesus' resurrection. And then Peter goes on to say, Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. And seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body decay. And God has exalted this, raised this Jesus to life, and we're all witnesses of this fact. And exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. So he's connecting the dots here. He's saying, you've seen this, this, this odd thing, these believers speaking in different languages, and the Holy Spirit has fallen upon them. This is a, this is a result of the promise that you received, that Jesus told you was coming from the Father. He's connecting the dots. Therefore, he says, that all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other disciples, Brothers, what shall we do? Now this is always the response. This is always the response of a person who truly wants to follow Jesus. This is always the response of a person in whose life the Holy Spirit is working. What shall I do? What shall I do? It's an awareness of their need for God and a desire to respond. What shall I do? We hear about God's holiness. We read about it. We study it. And then we recognize our own lack of holiness. The response should be, what shall I do, Lord? We, we hear about God's wisdom and we see the foolish things that people do, that we do. The response should be, what shall I do, Lord? We hear about God's faithfulness, his truth. We reflect upon our own deception and hypocrisy. What shall I do, Lord? What shall I do? That's the response that Peter is waiting for. Verse 38, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, repent means to change direction. You're going on the wrong path you, you know you're on the wrong path and you change direction. You turn around and get on the right path. It's not, I'm sorry, God. I know my life isn't what it should be. I'm messing up. But then we keep on doing the same thing over and over and over. 
No, repentance is, I'm sorry, God, I'm messing up, I'm sinning, and then you change direction and you walk on the right path. He says, repent and be baptized. They're, they're tied together. Repent and be baptized. In baptism, we, we identify with Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It's a sort of a, a symbol, a, 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 a verbal sermon about Jesus, the good news of Jesus. He, 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 he lived, he died for our sins, and he, he raised, he's raised up to new life. We acknowledge that through Jesus' death, our sins are washed away. We acknowledge through Jesus' resurrection that we can be raised to life both now and forever. And again, Peter makes it very clear that Jesus is the way. Because every once in a while, a prophet would come, like John the Baptist, who would be preaching, repent and be baptized. Um, that was their only option at that time. But now there's a better way. The way of life is available. Through Jesus, be baptized in his name, because everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And then what's left of what we have of Peter's sermon is next. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. What an incredible thing to, to hear. If you trust in Jesus and you believe in him and you repent and you're baptized in his name, you will receive and experience the power and the peace and the presence of the very Spirit of God. And in the rest of the sermon we don't have. I'm sure we talked about how Jesus changed his life, about some of the things that Jesus did and taught. I'm sorry, reference the Old Testament, other scriptures. But we do have the response to his message. Verse 40. And with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000 baptisms. 3,000 conversions in one day. What can we attribute that to? The work of the Holy Spirit and a clear and direct presentation of the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The work of the Holy Spirit as we point people to Jesus through our words and through our actions and lives. Anything that's of God and anything that is lasting is sourced in that. And so what that means is we must always operate out of that as a church, deeper in Christ, further in mission, trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit to guide us and empower us and, and fill us to produce fruit for the kingdom of God. And we must always operate from this as individuals. If we want to see God work in us and through us to grow his kingdom and to see the people around us come to faith in, in Christ, we must depend upon the Holy Spirit and communicate clearly through our words and actions Consistently, the good news of Jesus. And just to be clear, this is the good news. God has a plan and purpose. At the center of that plan is Jesus, his son. And we sin and fall short, so Jesus willingly gives his life for us on the cross. And death could not hold Jesus, and he rose from the dead. And God does all of this because of his love for us. And if we call upon the name of Jesus, we'll be saved, and the Holy Spirit will help us and fill us to help us to live different lives, transformed lives, lives that are noticeably different, which is what happened with the early church. Because as we see in the last few verses of chapter 2, they lived in such a way that people were drawn to their community. 
They were devoted to God. They were devoted to his word. They were devoted to each other. And God did powerful, miraculous things in them and through them. And they shared their lives and their resources and their burdens and their joys with each other. And it says, verse 47, the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. Let's pray. Lord, may we be a church that honors you. May we be a people who are devoted to you, to your truth, to each other. May we as individuals depend upon your Holy Spirit as we clearly communicate the good news of Jesus through our words and through our actions. Lord, grow your kingdom in us. Grow your kingdom through us. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand now for uh, the benediction. And as you do so, just a reminder to our, our prayer team, if they can take their place at the end of the hallway here. If you are here today and you would like somebody to pray with you uh, after the service, please uh, join them there. They'd be honored to pray with you today. And now may the love of God the Father, the grace of Jesus Christ, His Son, and the power and fellowship of the Holy Spirit abide with you now and always. Go in peace and serve the Lord. Amen.